a reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 6. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. When he looked up and saw a large crowd coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? He said this to test him, for he knew himself what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many people? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was a great deal of grass in the place, so they sat down, about 5,000 in all. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were satisfied, he told his disciples, gather up the fragments left over so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled 12 baskets. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. When Jesus realized they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. How much bread and wine does it take to have communion? Back in the pre-COVID days when we actually gathered in this place, this was always the question of the week. It was the math problem of the week. We had to figure out how many pieces of bread did we need based on how many people would be coming. And there were factors because maybe it would be different than last week and maybe there'd be different weather or sports event or it was a holiday weekend. How much bread do you need? I mean, it's one thing if you're out to eat for brunch and the waiter says, oh, I'm so sorry, we just ran out of the eggs, Benedict, but, but we still have the French toast. It's quite another thing to say to a worshiper who stood in line, I am so sorry, we're, we're, we're out of communion. You want a stick of gum? I mean, that won't work. That was pre-COVID. Since then, of course, we've seen pictures of cinnamon rolls and mimosas or French toast or waffles or bagels and cream cheese, all kinds of things. How much bread and wine does it take to have communion? I think in light of this story in the Gospel of John, the answer is less than you might think and yet more than you might imagine. You heard it. They're not in church, Jesus and his disciples in this crowd, not hardly. And these folks aren't watching at home with the refrigerator humming in the background. They're in a wilderness area near the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus sees these hungry people. Now, if you've read the other three Gospels prior to John's, you, you know what to expect. He's going to feed them, and of course he does. But in those first three, the disciples looking at Jesus and seeing that compassion in his eyes, that bleeding heart of his, they say, you know, 
maybe we should send these people into town so they can buy some bread to eat. But that's not what happens in John's gospel. Instead, Jesus initiates, he, he gives a little quiz. You know how the teacher will say, take out a piece of paper and number one to five. Only in this case, it's just one question. Philip, Philip, he says, where are we going to buy bread for these people to eat? <laughs> it's a really good question. It's a test. And, and Philip says in the Greek text, well, you know, even 200 denarii wouldn't be enough. And boy, is he right. A denarius was roughly the equivalent of a day's wage for the common laborer. And so the translation says six months, and some people say, well, it could have been closer to eight. But you get the point. It is not enough. There's 5,000 people. Andrew, in the crowd, finds this boy who has a few loaves of bread and, and some fish. And we're not told whether the boy volunteered it or Andrew confiscated it. Hopefully it was the former, but it's not enough either. And yet Jesus says, have them sit down. And there on the hillside, they sit down and they eat. Jesus feeds them. And never has a passage been clearer than this. John's not interested, like the other Gospels, not the least bit interested in how Jesus did it. He's interested in what it means. And it is so clear. Jesus doesn't look out at them and say, I wonder how many of them have a job. Are they looking for a job? He doesn't ask how long they've been on food stamps. He doesn't point the disciples and say, they look lazy, don't they? When Jesus sees hungry people, he feeds them. And by extension, he says to us, feed my people. I suppose, I suppose that for many of us, when we think about world hunger, we think about places on the other side of the world. Refugee camps in Sudan or Bangladesh or wherever. I have friends who moved to Atchison not that long ago. Wonderful little old railroad town with quaint shops, mom and pop shops and restaurants and you know, the birthplace of Amelia Earhart. But not everyone is flying high these days. My friends said that several days a week, the line of cars is over a mile waiting for food to feed their family. And it is not an isolated incident. It is true in so many parts of the United States. We, we called this sermon series recalibrate. Carla said, think, think of your bathroom scale. You know how it has to be reset so that it is accurate. Recalibrate. And the idea of this series was concrete things you could do to draw closer to God, to renew your spiritual walk. But when I think about a bathroom scale, I'm afraid that most of us think about the pounds that we need to shed at the very same time when people are going hungry. If you want to do something concrete, though, Feed the hungry. But there is something more profound going on in this text. Something more profound about what it means to feed the hungry. And the first clue is in Philip's answer to the quiz question. You know what he says? 200 denarii, that, that's not enough. But did you hear what he says? It's not enough for everyone to have 
even a little. Or as one translator puts it, a morsel. Picture the amount of bread used in church for communion, if you could even see it. Philip's vision is that everyone might get a little, but Jesus has a different vision. Philip's got a calculator. He's trying to figure out the math. What he needs is a grander religious imagination because what Jesus imagines is a feast. In fact, when he says, have them sit down, in Greek it's really have them recline. And that verb gets used several times. It's the same verb that would be used of banquets in the Mediterranean world. Have them recline. We're going to feast. And where they recline, even though they're in the wilderness, is on the grass, the green grass. There was some grass there, which is supposed to kind of echo for us Psalm 23. You know, the Lord is my shepherd and green pastures and a table and a cup that overflows. And not only that, But this meal, this banquet is not over until everyone is satisfied. You should probably just picture Thanksgiving when you're waddling back to the couch after that last piece of pie and you feel sated. That is the word that is used here. When they were full to the brim. If earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus turns water into wine, 120 gallons, he now feasts with them with bread and fish. And in the telling of this story, not only do we get a picture of Jesus feasting with the poor, but we get a little jab at the Roman Empire. John is the one who says, well, it's the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias, which would have evoked politics in the day of Jesus. Herod had changed Tiberias to be the capital, which was this kind of nod toward Rome. And whereas Rome was taxing bread and fish, Jesus gives it away for free. And yeah, yeah, Rome could occasionally give some bread out, distribute a little bit of bread to placate the masses, but Jesus envisions a feast. In the last few years, theologians like Miroslav Volf and so many others have been thinking about and writing about flourishing. That's the word they're using, flourishing. And it means so many things, but one of them has to do with enjoying good food, a feast. But here's the thing. You can't feast if others aren't eating. Flourishing means that all of God's children get to feast. In light of that, I tried to remember, what is the best meal I ever had? And honestly, I've had a lot of them. But the one that came to my mind was a few years ago when my wife and I had gone to Italy When we were in Florence, we had booked one of these excursions. It was a a, a feast out in the Tuscan countryside, up in the hills above Florence. About 20 of us got on the motor coach, made our way up. It was an estate. They'd converted this room to be a feast, a banquet hall. We sat out on the terrace. We had glasses of wine with the appetizers and a five-course meal. Every one of the courses paired with different wines. And the steak Florentine, oh my gosh, it was about this thick, cooked over wood fire. 
and it was to die for. It was amazing. And the desserts, and, ev- and, and we waddled away from that. We patted that stomach. We were sated. And my hunch is, it reminds you of a meal you've had. Because most of us have enjoyed those kinds of things from time to time. And what the idea of flourishing says is, and that is how the poor should be eating as well. I read a fascinating book this last week. Stephen Henderson's The 24-Hour Soup Kitchen. For most of us, we hear the words soup kitchen and we picture the poor trudging through a line with a tray, paper plate, they put a hamburger patty or some kind of casserole on it. Keep moving, keep moving. And let's be honest, any time the poor are fed, it counts, it matters. But Henderson's story is different. He'd gone to seminary back in the 80s, although his his career path took him to be a freelance writer living in New York City with his husband. They would host these lavish dinner parties because, well, Henderson, his mom had taught him to cook, and he'd watch the Galloping Gourmet on TV when he was a kid, and he became something of a chef. I mean, it was his avocation. Well, in 2008, he turned 50, and he had this midlife crisis. He didn't want a convertible. He wanted an oven a crazy, expensive oven made only in France. So, with a little bit of guilt and a lot of excitement, he flew to France to complete the order and talk to the people that made it. And that's when, over dinner, he learned about the story of Alexis Soyer. In the middle of the 19th century, Soyer had been the world's most famous chef. The man pioneered cooking with gas, and influence chefs for generations to come. But Soyer wasn't just an elitist. When the potato famine broke out in Ireland, he went to Dublin and fed the poor. Really good food. And that's when Henderson got the idea. I I don't have to choose between this oven and dinner parties and feeding the poor. There's a way to do both, and so that's what he did. He's a freelance writer, and so he would get these assignments to go all over the world, different topics. It wasn't all food, but in whatever city he would find himself, he would have done the research ahead of time, and he would find out where the food pantries and the soup kitchens were, and he would volunteer his services and pay for the meal. And if at some place they had had these tasteless hamburger patties, he'd say, I'm thinking chicken curry. And if normally it was just a packaged cookie for dessert, he'd say, no, 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 apple crisps. I I, I have this really great recipe for apple crisps I want to make. One night, he and his husband could be hosting a lavish dinner party with all the beautiful people in Manhattan, and the next day, flying to Guadalajara, where he would prepare a feast for transgender prostitutes. And reading that book, And reflecting on this story in the Gospel of John, it made me think. Yes, we have food ministries that we already do. You you heard about the sandwiches for cross lines, the lunches, and the the Micah ministry on Mondays. And those things matter. But what, what what if we could feast? What if we could prepare a feast for the poor? Maybe it makes perfect sense to have communion at home right now with cinnamon rolls 
and mimosas. But what else could we do? When one of our daughters lived in a poor part of L.A., she always carried in her car little baggies with a bottle of water, granola bars, maybe a sock, a pair of socks, that kind of thing. But, but what if... What if we made our family's favorite cookies, you know, like those chocolate chip oatmeal ones with a little pinch of sea salt on top, and packaged them and gave them to people on the street who were begging? Or what if when we went curbside and picked up that wonderful meal to enjoy back at our home with a bottle of wine, what if we ordered extra filet mignon or flounder and gave it to the first needy person we met? You, you, you get the idea. You're creative people. Henderson, in the book, found himself in Austin, Texas, under Interstate I-35. And his host, this, this man, said, over the noise, pointing at a homeless camp, this is America. But this man had done something about it. He was a businessman, and he got his buddies together, and they bought food trucks and they go throughout the city to all of these spots, homeless camps, and they prepare really good food. And it's called mobile loaves and fishes, just like in the text. Where are we going to get the food for these people to feast on? That's a good question. 